0: Would I'd like to share some things that have happened in my life, I get excited when I share about my pilgrimage. Montreat is a real special place to me. Uh, I founded in 1962, I was a member of the youth group and we came up here to attend a world's missions conference and uh, I fell in love with the place. The next summer I came back for another conference and brought my parents and they fell in love with it and my sisters followed. Uh, you may remember, some of you I, I know, I have seen, because I used to work at the gate, and that would really date me, uh, when they used to have a gate, they'd open it up and open and close the gate and restrict the access to all the Baptists at Ridgecrest who were trying to find Dr. Graham's home. Uh, we had fun those days sending them up Appalachian and all those other places that, as you know, I'm sure Dr. Graham appreciated that too. Uh, I also worked in the clubs, and I uh, was chauffeured back and forth from the airport for the inn. Well, my association with Montreal was broken for a number of years, and I, I came back uh, uh, during my tour in the Marine Corps. I entered uh, the Marine Corps in 68 after graduating from college. I came back uh, to be married here. Uh, Letta, Jean, and I had met many years before, and. We thought, what better a place to be united in our love than right here in Ga- Gaither Chapel. So this is this is a special place to be here. I feel very privileged. Later, my sisters, uh, Susan and Mary, would also be married here, even though we were from Florida. Three out of my four, two of my, two out of the three sisters would be married here in Gaither. Well, that's about it for the facts. My spiritual spiritual pilgrimage was a little rocky. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian church and even went to a Christian college, Presbyterian College down in Clinton. Here I learned all about God. And during the college years, uh, I began to drift away from the values I learned at home. Uh, I entered the Marine Corps. And it was there where you were taught to rely totally on yourself. An example is I I used to run a lot, but I only ran a few miles. And uh, little did I know that I would run about 10 miles, leading a company of about 250 Marines. Of course, it's kind of hard to stop running when you're ahead of 250 Marines. I became very confident in my abilities. Uh, One thing the Marines do teach you is to be confident, and uh, they do instill you a great amount of pride. I came back from combat in Vietnam uh, where I did not lose any men, and I thank God for that. The Marines have a saying that uh, when you're one of the world's finest, it's hard to be humble. Well, you see, I had, and that was true, I was very proud. Uh, what I'd done, but that's the problem is this old animal called pride said that all the strength came from within me Jesus said we must humble ourselves and become as little children if we are to inherit the kingdom of God. By the world's measure of success I had everything I had status, I had respect I had financial security, I had a loving family I was a captain of Marines. But I wasn't happy or peaceful. I looked at my wife's quiet and gentle spirit in 1 Peter's A Glorious Passage. And through her quiet and gentle way, I saw the Lord working in her life. And she was peaceful and happy and joyful. And I said, why am I not? I have everything. Why? But I saw... That I was the leader. Now, I, as a leader of a company of Marines, the, my orders were obeyed instantly. And I lived for myself. I did what I wanted to do, not what he wanted to do. I had the dreaded eye disease that so many of us have. And that can only lead to death. So I repented and asked his forgiveness. And he was gracious and did become Lord of my life. And I did receive that peace and the joy that my wife had. And I, I get excited when I think about it because my life drastically changed from that point. It caused me to leave the Marine Corps after 12 years in the interseminary to be obedient to Him and not to skip. Now, there may be some of you that have not given your life to Christ, have not surrendered. Totally, and ask Him to be Lord. And I encourage you to accept Him as Lord and receive this peace and joy that I have and all of my Christian brothers and sisters also have. Today we
1: are studying the 121st Psalm because it's Montreat Sunday and when you think of Montreat, you think about the hills. I can still remember the first time that I came here And I can also remember very clearly the first time that I went to Jerusalem. It was in 1960. I was with Dr. Leighton Ford and we had been with Dr. Billy Graham and his associates in a safari for souls that took us throughout Africa. We had flown on an old super-constellation sea all the way across the Sahara Desert and had landed in Cairo. And after we had been in Cairo for a while, we went over to Oman in Jordan And then from there we went to Jerusalem. And I can still remember when the pilot announced that we were in Jerusalem. I pressed my nose against the window of the airplane and I looked down at that city compactly built together and I thought, there it is. I've read about it all my life and there it is. It was in March 1960, the hills about Jerusalem, the lakes were there. Now, I always say at this point that my first impulse was to get some dynamite and blow up all the churches because they seemed to have built a church over everything I wanted to look at. And uh, uh, that bothered me a whole lot. And the people herding you in and out of buses to see one shrine after the other, that didn't seem too worshipful to me. And everyone trying to sell you something. And this also bothered me somewhat. But in days when pilgrimages were made by the people of God to the holiest place on all of earth. For a pious Jew, the words of this psalm must have been written. There are great biblical scholars who assume that it was born out of the grinding adversity through which those who were taken in captivity in 586 B.C. and were taken off into the Babylon far away far away from their land, and who would look at the barren plains and the shimmering heat and think of the hills around Jerusalem and who wanted more than anything else in the world to return to the place where God had manifested his glory and where God had spoken through prophet uh, to his people. They wanted that place very much. And then up until the time of our blessed Lord Jesus, when as a little boy of 12, he made his pilgrimage up for his bar Mizbah uh, to the city of Jerusalem. He would have probably been in a caravan of pilgrims. And the Psalms from 120 to 134, those 14 Psalms are called the songs of ascent, to go up, or the songs of degree. And uh, just as even Marines sing when they march, or armies sing when they march, the pilgrims would sing these hymns as they marched toward the city of Jerusalem. And then when their eyes would catch a glimpse of those hills, oh, how their hearts must have thrilled as they looked at the hills and thought of all of the holy associations and memories that crowded into their minds there. And you could almost hear one pilgrim. He would say, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hill. And then there would be a full stop. And then he would ask the question, from whence does my help come? And then maybe a chorus would answer, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is a great affirmation of faith. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We say those words in the creed and it adds to us a great dignity and strength and a rock upon which we stand and build our faith. The maker of heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And these hills remind him of the Lord. Remember that they had been in adversity. But they had not been in adversity alone. They had been carried off into brutal captivity. And they knew the sting of the lash upon their back. They knew what it was to go through grinding poverty. They knew what it was to be disenfranchised from their rights. But they knew that God was the source of all justice and all right. And so they appealed their case unto him. And they knew that God was watching them. And that's why they could say, he will not let your foot be moved. More correctly, for people in mountainous country, he will not let your foot slip. He won't let you slide away. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps you will not slumber. Now, if you could get the picture, of course, it took a long time to get there. There wouldn't be any holiday inns to stay in on the road. And so they would pitch their tents, and the caravan would move together, and they would set up a sentry to guard against marauders or bandits or robbers that might come in on them at night. And then perhaps one of the pilgrims would wake up and look against the skyline, and he would see the sentry silhouetted against the skyline, the sentry keeping watch over the people of God who were going to sleep below. And he thought of the great God who kept watch over him and over all of his people whom he had chosen out of all of the earth, the keeper of Israel, the keeper of the church today. And it brings to the psalmist great comfort and it brings to our heart's comfort too. Their adversity had taught them lessons that their prosperity had taken away. I always like to point out that trouble can have a good side to it. The Lord can speak to us. I'm sure that most of us pray more earnestly when we get in trouble than we do at any other time. I've often thought that when the books are open and we look back over our life and the times in which we prayed, it's been when we've really been pushed up against it, that we've humbled ourselves before the Lord and we've sought his presence. And so adversity can be a good school in which we can learn. And we can learn much there. And it can help us later on. The psalmist says, In my distress I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. And that's about the way it is with all of us. In our distress we cry unto the Lord and he speaks to us. Dr. Billy Graham wrote a book a few years ago in which his researchers counted over 3,000 times The Lord spoke unto me. The Lord said this unto me. Now that's a personal faith. The Lord speaking to me. And the Lord is speaking to us words which we need to assure us in times of trouble. And those who were taken from the city of Jerusalem and who were taken into cruel captivity and who knew what it was to be up against lying lips and deceitful tongues and slanderous and hateful people, they could turn to the Lord to remedy them from the assault of that false tongue and from the hardship that they went under. I said a moment ago that adversity can teach us. Uh, This afternoon I'll go to Appalachian Hall where we hold a service for the patients, and there will be a man there who used to be the chairman of the Rules Committee of the National Amateur Golfers Association. And he always likes for me to tell this story because he is a, these people have the most incredible memories for statistics related to golf that you ever saw. But in 1970, the uh, National Golf Tournament, a pro-golf tournament, was held in Jonathan, Minnesota. And if you've ever been in Minnesota, you know that Minnesota has a way of having extremes of temperature and the weather can change very drastically and very dramatically. And that has to go down as one of the years when the scores were the lowest in any big uh, professional golfer's tournament. And one of the reasons was that at the time the tournament had to be played, it was bitterly cold, and there were winds that were gusting up to 40 miles an hour. And there were people like uh, Arnold Palmer and Gary Player and, and Billy Casper, who couldn't even break par. But there was another fellow there with a big smile on his face. He loved the weather. His name was Tony Jackman, and he was from Scotland. And he grew up in that kind of weather, and he learned to play golf in that kind of weather. He knew just how to tee up his ball and just how to loft it into the air so that what caused everyone else frustration sailed his ball all the way down the fairway. And he broke bar and won the tournament. He learned how to use the forces that other people couldn't use because he had been through the school of adversity. And so these people had learned too. They had learned in their adversity to put their trust in the Lord. And so they they started to trust him with all that they had. And this made all the difference in the world. Now then, this is the lesson that we need today too. We need to know, behold, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Behold. You remember John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Remember that Pilate brought Jesus out to the crowd and said, behold, the man. Remember in the book of Revelation, Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. Anytime those words are used, we are bidden to pay special attention because God is saying something special to us. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And that's to bring to us comfort. I remember a few years ago when some silly theologians didn't have anything else to write about, and so they wrote some books called God is Dead. And there was one old lady in Georgia who looked at the title of the book and laughed at it. She said, God's never even been sick. And she had a lot lot more sense than the theologians who wrote the book. God is not dead, the theologians are sick, but God isn't. Uh, God is very much alive and well. And God is watching over his people. And that brings to them a sense of comfort. I can remember 15 years ago when I used to have access to the White House, it used to always, be of interest to me when I would sometimes come out of the president's bedroom at 2 or 3 in the morning, that just outside his bedroom, there was a secret service agent, very, very much alert. And he was seated at a place where he had a lamp. The president had a thing about turning lights off. And uh, this secret service guy had a lamp, and he had a phone there that could get in touch with everything in a minute. He could pick it up, and there would be a helicopter coming to land on the White House lawn. He could pick it up and there would be a whole gang of secret service that would be coming up the elevators and the stairs instantly. Uh, he had a coated black box that was there beside him. Uh, but he didn't slumber and he didn't sleep and he was very much awake. And they changed them very frequently so that they had very alert people there. Well, the Lord's got his own secret service. He has his angels watching over us and he's watching over the angels. And he is watching over us and wants us to know that he is going to be our keeper. And it makes a difference to know that you're watched. I always like to point this out. It gives you a great deal of dignity, or it can be a little humiliating to know that you're being watched. I think my wife is very pretty, except when she puts that crazy thing that looks like a hornet's nest over her hair after she's had her hair done. Uh... And I've noticed when the doorbell rings, that comes off very quickly because no one wants to be seen with that thing on. Uh, it, it looks off. Uh, we when we're being watched, there's a difference. Dr. Bell, uh, one of our elders here for many, many years, used to always say to me when we'd come out of the session meeting, he was so sweet and tactful, but he'd come over to me and say, Calvin, comb your hair. <laughs> uh, and uh, I appreciated that. Uh, He he always was so thoughtful about that. You're being watched. Well, you're being watched by God. And that brings to you dignity. It inspires you to better living. And it also gives you a sense of security and comfort. That the Lord is watching over you. The Lord is watching over you. And he is watching over you day and night. He does not slumber, nor does he sleep. He's got his eye on you. And our Lord Jesus taught that from the passage which was read earlier from the New Testament in the Sermon on the Mount. When he taught us to watch the lilies of the field, how they grow and they toil not, neither do they spin, and yet even Solomon in all of his glory is not arrayed like one of these. He taught us that his eye was on the sparrow. And sweet Ethel Waters, who used to, get to sing that better than anyone's ever been able to sing it, He used to say, if his eye is on the sparrow, he sure couldn't miss anything as big as I am. (sighs) He's watching me. He's watching me. And that's important for us to remember that that he is watching us. And that watching of us brings a lot of dignity to us. I have an unreconstructed Confederate friend who always comes in my office and turns my statue of Abraham Lincoln around to face the wall. I always know he's been there. Uh, when I <laughs> because when I come in, there's Abe Lincoln turned around facing the wall. Uh, and I love Mr. Lincoln. And uh, uh, he was a great president. And during the American Civil War, if you saw Alistair Cook last week in the History of America, in the educational TV series, Uh, you could see some of the great things about this truly incredible and remarkable man. He was a very compassionate man, and he grew in the Christian faith after he was president. It hurt him terribly to see how many people were killed in the war, and he used to go and visit the hospitals near uh, Washington, in the city of Washington itself, where the soldiers were taken. And Mr. Lincoln went one night to go and visit uh, the various wounded service personnel, and he stopped at one young boy who was delirious and full of fever and evidently not long for the world. And Mr. Lincoln spoke to him. And the boy said to him, Sir, he didn't recognize the president. He said, Sir, would you, re- would you write a letter to my mother? I'm dying. And Mr. Lincoln took a pencil out of his pocket. And he pulled up a chair and he sat down and he said, All right, son. Tell me what you want me to write. And so the boy dictated and the President of the United States of America, his Commander-in-Chief, wrote down the letter to his mother as the boy dictated it. When he had finished the dictation, he said to the President, still not knowing who he was, Sir, would you sign your name so that Maul, would know who it was that was kind enough to help me tonight. And so he signed his name, Abraham Lincoln. And when the boy took the letter and looked and saw Abraham Lincoln, he said, Mr. President, I didn't know it was you, sir. And Mr. Lincoln said, Is there anything else I can do for you, son? And the boy said, I'm going to die, and I'm afraid. Would you watch with me a while? And the President of the United States of America took that dying soldier boy's hand in his own hand. It was 9 o'clock in the evening, and he sat there from 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock to 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock. At 3 in the morning, the boy's breathing stopped, and he died. And the president folded his arms over his chest and closed his eyes and went away with tears in his own. But he gave dignity to that boy. He made him know that even though he was only a private soldier in the army, that he was precious to the commander-in-chief. And if Mr. Lincoln would do this, then how much greater our blessed Lord Jesus Christ and the beauty of the lilies he was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As Jesus died to make us holy, we're to die to make men free. And we can make them free us through the gospel of Christ. Well, our time is gone. Let me say in closing, lift up your eyes to the hills. And if you look at the hill of Sinai, you see the law of God which teaches us how to live. Four laws that deal with our relationship to God, a transition law that deals with our relationship to our parents, and then five laws that tell us how to deal with one another. That's Mount Sinai. And when I come to Mount Sinai, its thunderings frighten me because I've fallen far short of the spirit of those laws. But I can look at another mountain, and that mountain is Calvary. That's the mountain that I can lift up my eyes and look to and know that Jesus died on that cross and that Calvary covers it all. My sin, with its sin and shame. I can look there and my despair goes away because of the hope that he brings to me. There's another mountain called Olivet. That's where Jesus will one day come back again. He will come again to judge the quick and the dead. He will come back to claim his own. There's a valley that people go through before then called Armageddon, and General MacArthur, a warrior whose memoirs I brought out this morning because of a great speech that he made on the battleship Missouri. Men, since the beginning of time, have sought peace. Various methods through the ages They have attempted to devise international processes to prevent or settle disputes between nations. From the very start, workable methods were founded insofar as individual citizens were concerned. But the mechanics of an instrumentality of larger international scope have never been successful. Military alliances, balances of power, leagues of nations, all in turn have failed leaving the only path by way of the crucible of war. We have had our last chance. If we do not now devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. The problem is basically theological and and it involves a spiritual recrudescence, an improvement of human character that will synchronize with our almost matchless advances in science and art. It must be of the spirit if we are to save the flesh. So I must go up to my hilltop again. I've stayed in the valley too long. I must hear again the whispers of peace and the echoes of angels' songs. Oh, yes, I know that there's work in the valley to do. One must live by the highway of life. One must build his house near the pressing throng in a world that's weary with strife. But I must go up to my hilltop again. One can stay in the valley too long. It's so easy to lose the whispers of peace and grow deaf to the angel's song. I must go up to my hilltop again for a grasp of the Spirit's hand if I'm to live by the highway of life and to make it God's heavenly land. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you will add your blessings to us so that as we march through life, we may be led by you, by the great hill of Sinai and Calvary and Olivet, knowing that you are watching over us and that we have the dignity of being watched and cared for by a God who cares. In Jesus' name, amen.